0: Welcome to episode number 13 of iLoop. Today's guest is Devaki Thomas. Devaki is a movement psychotherapist. She's also an accomplished musician as a drummer and a vocalist, as well as a professional Indian classical dancer. She and her husband Thomas are known in international art circles for their music and award-winning world fusion dance projects, Samsara and Stunflower. Deviki had a most unusual upbringing in Canada. She is the eldest daughter of a seven-sibling family, raised in the music-centric Hare Krishna Commune in Vancouver. In October 2020, she created Sound and Movement Sanctuary, collating 30 years as a dancer, musician, teacher, producer, and now psychotherapist. Her story is a glimpse into the challenges and rewards of a life in a cult-like upbringing and how this has shaped her as an artist, mother, and now psychotherapist. I began by asking her to tell her story about her childhood in Canada. And from there, we went on to talking about the turning points in her life. Enjoy.
1: Yes, I was raised in Vancouver, Canada um my father was first generation um, his parents were from south africa and england and my mother is was french canadian so the french canadian communities have been there for many many years and in, they were um a product of the 60s hippie movement i would say in the sense that they were university students who gave up the dream of materialism that they believed their parents had dedicated their lives to and in that heavy movement it was a lot of uh, activism protests uh, my father occupied his university uh, administration building for two weeks with his mates um so out of that came an interest in anything non-western i suppose in a way and um you know because i think a lot i think that happened to a lot of people in, the, in that generation looking at the post-war um materialism that had set in which was just really an answer to having nothing and having you know living in fear to wanting stability and security so everyone went into this place of stability and security and then the children of that my parents felt that that was the focus and it and it led them more and, and plus i think a big part of it was my father being a child of, of immigrants so there wasn't that family stability on his side so he was searching for that um plus you know, a quest for spirituality, which many of his generation were. So that led him to the Hare Krishna movement in, yeah. So Western Canada Hare Krishna movement at the time, my parents basically started the temple in Vancouver. There was no temple Um, and I was born into it. So my, I had an older brother and my, my mother was uh, pregnant with me when I was, she didn't want to join, by the way. That was, that was another sign of the times. Patriarchy was, flourishing. Um, So the men made the decisions for the family um, more so back then. Yeah. So I was born into it and raised in a a monastic environment, um, where austerity and poverty were um, celebrated and lived. And um, the members of the society gave up their entire lives, their name, their clothes, their bank accounts, everything, everything that they knew previously was given away. Uh, and they shaved their heads they wore robes robes of mendicants India 500 years ago like they were emulating a emulating a movement uh called the Vaishnav movement specifically following the teachings of Chaitanya who was a saint about 500 years ago and and um every weekend sometimes more than that we were out in public dressed in our full saris so the women wore saris always had a covered head you couldn't what, you couldn't go without a covered head um the men wore dhoti and, and uh, uh kurta and we all wore the markings the vaishnava markings of tilak so we were fully immersed and fully fully immersed in the in this new movement um and completely obvious that we didn't belong in an everyday society so when we went out to do some kirtan on the streets of vancouver downtown <laughs> you can imagine this, this the the interactions we ran into a lot of animosity and i didn't know it at the time but i think some of that animosity had to do with young people getting brainwashed into a cult which of course i didn't see at the time i mean i never thought of Hari krishnas as a cult but i think some people's families were had lost their children to the Hari krishnas mm-hmm. my grandparents were of, the, of those people so there was probably a lot of animosity and anger towards that um, um I think 20 acres uh prime real estate uh with with the condominiums for all the members to live in a huge amount of property around built a massive temple huge temple and this is this was the environment we grew up in right so our community was first the temple was first the kids we were we were it was supposed to be that the children were seen as, you know, we would hear it all the time. You are the, you know, the first generation. You are the real bhaktas, the real devotees. You know, they were born into it. You're special, you're, you're elevated, you're, you know, this is what we heard. And I mean, everything about the Hare Krishna lifestyle was um, was spiritually based. You know, we would um, wake up at 3.30 in the morning, um, have four hours of, of, of Arti ceremony, lectures, um japa rituals for yeah for over over four hours as a community um and then the rest of our day was either spent in service as we would call it uh which was you know if if you were a collector which meant you would go out onto the streets and bring in money for the community to live off of um or if you were a teacher you would teach the kids or if you were just a family person you look after your family whatever it was whatever your you know everyone had to contribute to the community so uh, and then, and you would spend your whole day doing that, you would eat communally, um, all our festivals, which we had many of because we we celebrated all the Hindu um, festivals, and we brought in the, 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 the public would be welcomed in on those days. So we were constantly interacting with the public as these sort of chosen few, right, these chosen few that would go out and then and, and the kids were literally paraded around as the chosen few to, you know, kind of recruit people, right? It's like, Oh, yeah, the kids are, you know, look how happy our children are. Poke, poke, smile, smile. Are you smiling big enough? Are you dancing big enough? Poke, poke, you know, that kind
0: of thing. As a, as a child, you know, you grew up in this. You didn't know any different. Um, what was your experience on the inside? Yeah,
1: I mean, I loved it. I loved it. I, it was my community. And I'm, I consider myself a community person. If, if, you, if I look at it now, um, you know, I didn't belong to my parents. I belonged to the community right so we we were a community of 150 people so i happen to think of how many aunties i had you know like and how many kids i had to play with and i've because i was the president's daughter i had free reign in the sense that i could run free you know and my mom and dad were so busy running the temple i think of my childhood as running in a sorry barefoot sweaty through the forest building forts with my friends and oh you know going and visiting this the devotee's house and meeting and babysitting their kid and going and meeting this devotee, you know, if the, these are the positive aspects, and then constant feasts and constant celebrations, and you know, as the girls were encouraged to be good cooks, good sewers, whatever seamstresses, whatever you want to call that, um, good wives, good dancers, good musicians. The, the positive for me in that is that I dance became my passion at a very very young age. I was introduced to Odissi dance when I was five. And then later on so that was a positive it became it was like it caught my heart and it's never left yeah dance is still a huge part of my life always will be um uh, and music is a huge part of my life both my brothers were musicians as well so and and you know music was the one thing that transitioned me and my husband out of the hari krishnas in 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 some kind of a of a some kind of a bubble that you know let us have something um so that's that's the positive aspect um the negative aspect a complete lack of boundaries <laughs> which i am i'm 50 now and i'm still learning this and and when you live in a world and you live in a city like london and you have issues with boundaries and you're an artist uh i think you can probably put two and two together and see what you know it, what that can create we lived by the vedas those were our our bible was the bhagavad gita Right. So we lived by the instructions of the of these scriptures. One of those ways of living was, you know, that's like said, renouncing everything and devoting your whole life to Krishna. And another one of those things was all the children were put into gurukulas schools by the time we were four and five. Um, Now, if your temple didn't have a guru kula, or if your father was a leader, which mine was, you had the option to go to be sent anywhere in the world to a more established guru kulas that have reputation. So my brothers were shipped off at four to Dallas, Texas. I was shipped off at five to Seattle.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. My other brother was shipped off at six to Pennsylvania. I mean, you can imagine being shipped off when you're that age to strangers, complete strangers yeah um so and 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 then corporal punishment was in our in our teachings so it was you know um yeah it was part of it corporal punishment was part of was part of um was part of the gurukula system which meant physical physical punishment um you know um and the thing is is physical punishment is one thing because our teachers didn't have training none of them are proper teachers oftentimes it ended up being that the people who taught us Were the people who couldn't do anything else so they would be slotted into being our teachers and some of them were sadistic i mean sadistic we didn't have you know you know there was the interaction any interaction we had was person to person so there was i think in a way our brains were that was a positive aspect is that we were we were were, i was reciting vedic sutras by the time i was five right like we all were right so yeah. But the curriculum was so it's very focused on reading and writing and then focused on Sanskrit. We learned Sanskrit. And then the girls, of course, you know, we were really pushed into the sort of the, the housewife kind of things, you know, and 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 luckily dance and music was in there. Luckily. Um, but so we would go and live with the teachers. So at five years old, I said goodbye to my mother and went to live with strangers I've never met in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And yeah. And I thought it was a great adventure. Right. Because there was all these girls I'd never met and some of them were older and younger. And I was like, oh, my God, party, you know, great, lovely, all these new people, new ways. It was exciting. I learned, I think, on the third day of that that <laughs> a violence was around me at all times and torture was around me at all times. And I didn't I, I had to learn the hard way by complete surprise, which is probably the worst way you could learn for someone like me because I'm a very sensitive person. But yeah, I I learned by surprise by trying to entertain the teacher and her like slapping me full on across the face. And it just, there's just, you know, you, you didn't know what you did wrong, but you'd end up in the dungeon, you know, it was like this, this, like a dugout place that would stick you in and you'd be in the complete dark in this dugout and you didn't know where it was. Um, you would spent hours there you didn't you didn't even know I can tell you what I did wrong. Or the other another famous torture was sticking you into ice cold showers with all your clothes on until you couldn't breathe. I mean, it's just endless. And I got the least of it because my father was a, a leader. Um, some of the some of the girls. Ugh, it's horrendous. Um, so that was the very negative side of it, obviously. Um, since then, hundred of us kids, we had a class action lawsuit and we sued the Hare Krishnas for, you know, millions. By the time it came down to, you know, the, the financial aspect of it, it was, you know, not that much, but it, it was something. Yeah. I mean, if I go back to, if I go back to those days, yeah, I think, I think what it was, is there was, there was, there were no checks and balances in place. And the, the kids paid the price, my generation, we paid the price. My brother, my brother took his life uh, nine years ago and it was a direct result from what he went through as a child and many, many, many children to have taken their life. Many, 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 many It's the percentage is so high. Um, yeah. So that's the, you know, the tragedy of it all, um, you know, but, but I'm still here. And uh, my other six siblings, sorry, my other five siblings are still here. And we're all, you know, building our lives and, and um, maybe trying to even, you know, especially my, my sisters, my younger sisters, they all have PhDs and work for the government and, you know, live their lives. And, uh, you know, it's like completely opposite to how we were raised. Um, I've chosen the artistic life because I, I have to um, from from for myself, uh, for my expression. But um,
0: we want to sort of identify a particular turning point. Now, that itself, you know, that childhood is a very, very, you know, It's a very unusual one most people would not have had that kind of childhood so would you say that the the leaving of that commune and that group was that the turning point for you uh, or is there something else that you'd like to talk about today
1: the turning point i mean to be honest that was probably the most in, in a way, the most traumatic part of our lives was leaving the Hare Krishnas because we left the safety of our commune. It was the only thing we knew, the only reality we knew was the philosophy of, of, the, of the, that the Hare Krishnas taught us, you know? Um, so that was a very, very traumatic period. And my husband and I, because my husband had joined as a teenager and he came to Vancouver with his guru from, from England, from here. Now he's not from here, he's from Trinidad, but he came via England and he was here. And so we left together and we left actually, we got together playing playing music in a band for, for one of the Hare Krishna festivals, the Ratheatra festival. And, and, and him and I clung to each other for dear life kind of thing. As my parents were leaving, they were, you know, their whole lives blew up. It was like, you know, it was, yeah, it was insane. What, what was
0: the reason that they finally decided to leave? Well, um, I think it was a
1: combination of things. We sat my dad down one time, me and my two brothers, we sat him down and we told him everything that had happened um in all the schools and and it, I mean I'll you know I'll never forget that day it was like his body was being riddled with bullets I mean oh, you know he was he was head was hanging in shame I mean
0: he didn't you know, know that's amazing he had you no
1: know, and that's the that's the sad part is how disconnected that my parents were from us and all and our parents were more in our lives you know than a lot of other parents you know um they, because we were taught it was part of the philosophy that the kids and and that your kids are not your kids they're Krishna's kids like I said so he had lost his position he got while he was busy managing other parts of the movement he, he lost position back home so he came home to kind of a broken man in the sense that the devotees in the temple were like oh you're off you're off reforming the movement are you you're off telling the gurus that they should get off their high horse well we think you should get off your high horse and come down from presidency and we should rule as a you know autonomous you know uh, more democratically and uh and so the, so his position so he was kind of left with with what do i have now um so i think it coincided with us telling him this stuff and my brother was 17 i was 16 my younger brother was 14 so it was like we were teenagers there wasn't any schooling for teenagers that was the big thing it's like all the schooling went up to a certain level and then stopped so there wasn't really any future in terms you know the, the movement wasn't old enough to have any kind of future for its children yeah
0: so so you see so your father obviously um had by this time become disillusioned and realized that it wasn't quite what he had thought it was going to be and and so you and um Thomas your husband you by this time you'd met and um what was it that gave you the courage to leave the commune because your whole life I can imagine the thought of leaving for you must have been scary for him maybe not so much because he came in a bit later didn't he yeah yeah so tell me about that
1: I mean, I don't know if I would have left if my, if my brothers hadn't, it was my brothers that spearheaded it, to be honest. They're the ones, you know, that really pushed my dad, actually. Um, I found that out later, you know, but I don't know if I would have left. I mean, the thing is that that Thomas, him and I, you know, when we started hanging out, it was kind of around the time that we were leaving as well. So the fact that he was, he was exiting at the same time on his, of his own accord, I think, you know, and then us getting together probably sealed the deal, I think. Um, So I didn't see it as a courageous move. I, I saw it as, you know, my family is doing this. Thomas is doing this. It's the next step. Um, I don't think I felt much autonomy back then. I mean, I did in a sense, you know, I, I actually went and got my own education sorted. I went to uh, and got my GED, which is a general education diploma, completely of my own accord, got myself there, signed myself up. I think I was 14 when I started that. I started my own Bharatanatyam dance set lessons of my own accord. I, I wasn't making any money. I found a way, way to do it. You know, so I did take initiative. I'm not saying I wasn't courageous. It was working here in London in the arts. And I, I just, every 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 relationship, I just felt like I was giving 150% because that's what I was used to doing back home. I was used to giving a hundred percent, 150% for my band, you know, travel, you know, insane schedules that would knock most people off their. you know, you know, you know, we used to upon this three day festival, we had four kids, it was, you know, it was crazy. We did it for 10 years. So. Coming here to the UK, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to take that same passion that I have that's brought me forward in the arts. You know, I saw some success and I, you know, I, I, I have some, I, I have some beautiful contacts that I've made and I, 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 you know, have met some wonderful, wonderful artists and I will hold on to those special people forever. And my way is to work. I watched my mother do it work 17, 18 hour days, seven days a week. You know, I saw her do that work herself to the bone for her community. And so I was doing the same thing, but just in a different way. And it was torture, pure torture. Um, and that's, I, I found a therapist then I said, okay. And I didn't want, I didn't want a regular therapist. I wanted, because I all I'm so up in here when you've lived a lot of trauma as a child, I'm sure, you know, many people have shared the same trait. When you live through a lot of trauma, your brain becomes your It's like, it's like your tentacles, your antenna, right? So your, your brain becomes your way of surviving. You become like, you become like a, you know, like a super antenna kind of like, you just, you're, you, you take in every bit of information, you can you can soak in 20 people's agendas, you can walk into a room and know what every single person is there for and what they're doing and what it's just you become this like, hyper, 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 hypersensitive aware person to survive your trauma. And I mean, thank God I had that ability, because if I didn't, right, What what's the other thing, some people, they don't have that ability for their brain to kind of take over and figure things out. To survive, I had to please everybody. Okay. So what does this person want? I'll be that. What does that person want? I'll be that. I'll be that for every single person. I will please them to survive. Right. So I learned that and my brain was what kept me figuring it out. Always. What does that person need? You know? So I, I, so I I knew that I didn't want a a talk therapist. I didn't want someone who was gonna, I was gonna be able to talk. I could talk circles around therapists.
0: The thing is you're so aware of what's actually going on for you and you know why you are the way you are so I can understand why talk therapy wouldn't really have helped because you already know that yeah and so talking about it is not necessarily going to create any way of getting out of that particular yeah. trap I think what's interesting for me I mean is that you mentioned obviously that you became really good at um, spotting danger for yourself
1: mm-hmm. and figuring
0: out what you needed to do to prevent that from happening and I wonder if you took that that sort of way of surviving into the workplace as well that you got really good at anticipating other people's needs and and pleasing them so that they wouldn't turn around and make you feel bad is that right that's exactly it so so yeah. at what point did you actually because i think you talked about boundaries you mentioned that you know that everyone in the community were trained not to have boundaries because their whole purpose was to serve but I suppose in a community where everyone is like that uh, there is the game you're playing means that you do get something back when you give because that's yeah. those are the rules of the game but when you when you apply those rules to a game where it's, that's not those are not the rules so it feels like when you came into work you know in in the jobs you were doing the rules of engagement were very different but you didn't adapt to those rules you were still playing on the same rules where there was more fairness, maybe. Yeah, I can see that. So at what point did you get really clear on what it is that you wanted? Because it also feels like you, for whole of your childhood, you were never asked that question because it was not relevant. You know, what you wanted didn't matter because you were there to, to please Krishna and you were there to please other people. And it makes complete sense that so you became a people pleaser. So tell me about what happened for you to break that cycle that was clearly depleting you.
1: It was my work situation turning into a firing squad. That's what it felt like. It felt like I was being attacked from all angles. And people that I thought I trusted turned on me and pretended that they weren't turning on me. And I, I got it from every angle, literally every angle. And it, it, I, was, I felt myself crumbling. And um, I've never felt that before. Uh, in every work situation, I've been I've been able to figure it out, and uh, I've been able to, um, you know, adapt, work my work my magic. You know, it worked before in so many different cases, but it didn't work. You know, I, as as we come away, time heals all wounds because I think because you have perspective. You know, um, and I like to think I'm always growing and changing, like you know, many of us are. Um, so I feel like the more time I have away, I might have more answers right now. I just, I I, I guess I kind of look at it. I, I, I tie it in with the great turning, the great becoming, which is when a woman hits this age where her children are leaving home and you know, your body changes and everything that worked before isn't working anymore. I had a hysterectomy during that time in 2016, I had hysterectomy. So that, you know, it was, I feel like it was all somehow tied together. And I I think, you know, give me give me two more, three more years, I'll have more of a solid answer. But I feel like I just knew, I just knew that that was not the old ways that I was working was not working anymore. Something had to change. So this finding this therapist, the somatic therapist, and her helping me to really listen to my body um you know i spent four years with her three of those years i had to be with her because my course my movement psychotherapy course required that you have um, a minimum of 200 hours of personal therapy but um it coincided nicely you know And, and the course itself was very very transformative so it was kind of all happened at the same time you know um me knowing this my old ways you know what what's got me and helped me survive to this point is no longer working um you know, my body and everything inside of me is saying, no, uh, I didn't know how, you know, putting one foot in front of the other to survive those days was all I could do. And I did it for my kids. And I know so many mothers will say the same thing. We put one foot in front of the other for our kids. And, you know, you don't want to put that pressure on them. (laughs) Got to be careful not to tell them that too many times, but, um, but yeah, it was them. And I, I, I wanted them to know that I could move past the you know the confines of my childhood the things that kept me acting in a way that didn't serve my best highest good that didn't serve me walking free and true to myself in this world i want them to see that it's possible in life to completely transform so i knew heading into those therapy into therapy i knew and, I, and and the further I went into that journey of therapy and the ther- further I went into the journey of my movement psychotherapist course, it got harder and harder and harder. And it was, I mean, though that's where I can tell you I was courageous because it was like someone taking a knife and carving your insides out. That's what some of those therapy sessions felt like. And that's what some of the work I was doing in the, in the course felt like. It was literally torture. Um, but, so I can tell you, that's where my courage came out. And I, you know, I'm very, very thankful that I had the courage to, to push through, you know, and come to the other side. Because I feel like I'm on the other side now.
0: So as a result of that, you chose a course which also helped you to heal yourself. Yes. And you now, you now see that there are others who are like you, who probably will benefit from... You know the kind of therapy that you benefited from. So your, yours wasn't talk therapy. What what was involved in it? Was it dance? Was it what kind of movement? When you say movement therapy?
1: So well, the the, the therapist that I found actually was a somatic therapist. So somatic experiencing, some people call it, um, and it's somatic is just means of the body. So she um, used a lot of um, uh, meditation a lot of um, body awareness, um, maybe even a little bit of hypnosis. You know, uh, about a third of our session would be just checking in with my body and and just becoming hyper aware of my body. And in and in people who have had a lot of childhood trauma to survive, they come out of their body. And I think mm-hmm. I was talking to you about that before, how you you go into your mind because the body mm-hmm. is no longer safe. So you go into your mind to survive. And um, so bringing, bringing someone back to the body who's had a lot of trauma, you know, is, is, is number one. They have to wanna to do it.
0: So, um, somatic therapy and, um, you know, that kind of movement therapy is really, as you said, it's, it's about making that connection with the body rather than just with the mind. Mm-hmm. And um, you have found it to be a great way. To now give therapy to others, so t- tell me a little bit about that. How how's that, you know, how's that coming along for you?
1: Yeah, so um, it was a three-year course that I took. It was a master's in dance movement psychotherapy, is the technical um, term. I call mm-hmm. myself a movement psychotherapist now, um, because it's just easier, I think, for people to grasp the idea of it. Um, and it's using the body as a tool to access um to access your emotions really um i mean it, it's on the premise that our bodies store everything body memory so every part of our you know everything that we've experienced since birth is stored within our body
0: yeah.
1: um our body acts as a you know maybe a sponge you know for everything it acts as our protector but it can also uh protect us which mm-hmm. is which happens from a, with a lot of people who have suffered uh, trauma. So um, the idea is to very slowly build a therapeutic relationship with a client. And when I say slowly, I mean trust isn't something that can be faked or can be built quickly. It, it, you know the therapeutic relationship, the idea of building trust is, is number one. I think that is, that goes across most modalities of, of the psychotherapies. Um, and we do it in, in the movement psychotherapy, we do it through body, um, uh, body attunement. So we, and we, we, um, almost go, we almost mirror the attachment, the early attachment between a mother and a child.
0: Mm. So
1: that. Um, you know, many humans come from so much trauma and pain that that's not possible. So, um, but in a, in, in its purest form, I suppose, um, the relationship between a mother and a child is one of attunement where the mother is constantly feeling through her own body, what the child needs and wants, uh, and responding. So every time a child, you know, makes a movement, she gets, you know, you'll see that it's like a dance watching a mother and a child how, she, how, how the mother will will respond with her body so you, you set up sort of a therapeutic space and it's very much about especially the way I, I i do it myself with my own style is very much about as much nature as possible so you're setting to be as natural as possible natural lighting um, you know soothing music uh, you, you create sort of an environment where someone can come in and just feel safe from the environment. That's the basics. Then you attune to their physicality. So if someone comes in feeling very, you know, their their body is very stiff or tall or, uh, or shoulders hunched, you, you feel that feeling in your body as the therapist, and you kind of feed it back to them. So they can feel themselves in you number one. And number two, they, they will feel trust when they feel themselves in you, when they can feel that you empathize with them, with their physicality. So someone walks into the room and they're feeling something and you attune with that feeling. They're instantly going to feel safe because they feel understood and acknowledged and accepted. So it's Mm -hmm. about putting any, you know, putting, training yourself to put any judgment, societal judgment, personal judgment, personal triggers, putting that outside the therapy room, bringing your heart forward in as an empathic and caring way as possible to be truly there for the client uh, while maintaining boundaries. So this is the dance, the tricky dance between the movement psychotherapist and the client because when, a, when, a, when someone has suffered trauma or just even even minor levels of trauma, Oftentimes it's around an authority figure. It's around a caregiver. Hmm. So whenever that, if you're coming in as a therapist, you're instantly seen as, as a, as a, um, you go into the role of authority figure, the projections that the client is going to have on you is, 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 is either a parent or a teacher or someone in a role of authority. So instantly you've got to, you've got to feel those projections in your body and, kind of not assimilate them but process them for the client so always keeping yourself it's this delicate balance between keeping your heart connected your body connected to the client while keeping any judgments out of the room you're keeping your own needs out while still being aware of them but you do it with complete compassion so they can see themselves through your compassionate gaze, which is the gaze of a mother. And then at the same time, you can't project mother child onto your relationship. So it's such an incredibly balanced, nuanced dance. And it's why I am sold hook, line, and sinker on this profession because I will never yeah. be bored. <laughs> I'll never be
0: bored. And so I, have, I have a sort of a thought that's come to me that, you know, in, I can completely see how this particular profession is so suited um and I'm just wondering whether you your therapist and you have found a way for you to take time to be a little bit maybe selfish you know I mean that in the best possible way to to redress the balance the, the imbalance that you'd created where you were just giving 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 and you were not receiving or people were not giving you How have you managed to achieve some of that so you feel replete again? Yeah,
1: that's a wonderful question. I would say um, there's a few answers for that, I think. The number one thing, which is something I learned from my mother, who ended up being, um, she was a a psychologist um, after she left the Krishna. She went and got her master's. And the number one thing is self-care. Yeah. And of course, if you come from a background like I have come from, self-care is going to be something that, you know, it is has to be very mindful, very conscious, very deliberate. Um, and, and if you've had four children and you've, you know, been, you know, self-care is not something that comes like second nature. It's something, it's a journey that I'm on. I would say I'm kind of on the beginning of it in a way. Um, you know, I'm finally learning what it means. Uh, But I I would say that that's number one, actually. And then number two is realizing that I am a human being. And I can be fed from my clients. And I know this is this is, you know, this is something that I'm still learning. But what I mean is that I can learn from my clients. Mm. And I have learned from my clients in my three years in my training, I had many clients and the gifts that I received, you know, in my own, I mean, we're human beings, we we, we exchange in, in every exchange, we, you know, in every exchange, the more authentic the, the exchange is, meaning the more things we can get out of the way, the more we can come to our authentic selves, our true expression, whatever's in our heart and our mind in the room, the more we come to that, the more that exchange feeds both of us yeah. so really it feels like the purpose of everything in movement psychotherapy is to get to that place and as we've seen through the pandemic you know the lack of human exchange is can be deadly so the more we can move toward you know just on, just on a general humanistic term without thinking of it in, in the psychotherapy term more we can come toward authentic exchange i mean even if it's just like a conversation you know like we're having now or you know the more i am truly myself my heart is here with you my mind is here with you the more i'm able to do that and the more you're you're doing that with me when we finish that exchange we're both fed we're both um, we're both inspired we're both our lights are lit and so i suppose that's what therapy you know you want to help the person get to the place where they can have authentic exchange and if you've had a lot of trauma and if you don't trust authority and if you've had a lot of pain and if you have had a lot of struggle in your life authentic exchange is going to be almost next to impossible it might be completely foreign and i'm saying that because i know it i've lived it i've been that person that couldn't exchange authentically i couldn't be myself. I didn't know how to. I didn't know what I was feeling, when I was feeling, who I was safe with feeling, feeling, you know, so I was walking through my life. And that's why I was an artist, because that was the only time when I was on stage, only time I could feel real or feel myself was when I was singing or playing or, and it was the only exchange that I felt was authentic. Every other exchange felt riddled with anxiety and trauma. From now until when I retire, if I can spend those, the, the remaining of my years bringing myself and others toward authentic, meaningful exchange through the medium of the body, then that will bring, that will feed me enough.
0: I can sense that in healing, you know, people who have suffered trauma in in a strange way, you're healing the little girl that you once were, um, because, you know, that, that trauma is, is going to stay with you for a long time. And, you know. this may be one way of doing that so I want to sort of just wrap up with um, the one or two final questions Devaki um what would your definition be of a fulfilled life
1: I mean to be honest Rohini you know I I kind of feel like that now
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um you know if this were my last day I would I would look back and go yeah it's okay you know um And I guess I really want, I really don't want my trauma to define me. And that's really important. Um, And I'm sure any survivor of trauma will feel the same way that it does not define me. And and it is it's enriched me. And it's um, the wound, the deeper the wound, the deeper the gift. And I believe that. You know, through through hard work, but also through a lot of kindness and also through a lot of support, education, Um, opportunity, family, friends, through all these things, I've been able to transform deep wounds into deep gifts. It's being able to, you know what, right now for me, a fulfilled life is being able to stand anywhere in this world and say whatever I want to say. Mm. Um, You know, and even if it means I have to find a way to say it, But being able to be real, authentic, in the moment, all the time, that is to me is a fulfilled life. Um, uh, And I think the journey to get there is, you know, through being a therapist, through being a musician, through being a dancer, you know, through relationships. You know, I would like to fill my life more with more mentors and more people who've walked this path and come to the other side. I'm constantly searching for those people taking care of that little girl and 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 finding balance and healing and being able to share that with others while while taking care of myself and yeah and and keep on making meaningful dance and meaningful music collaborations and keep on keeping on and, and and don't let life stop me from expressing and being
0: That's beautiful David thank you so much and I wish you every success in creating that life. And, you know, obviously you, you're already living it to some extent, but maybe making it bigger, bolder and more authentic than it already is. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I found Devaki's story incredibly moving and at the same time, really inspiring um, to have gone through the difficult and very unusual childhood that she did To look at her challenges as uh, gifts is something that I think we can all take away some lessons from. Um, I think also for me, the other big takeaway was um, her observations on boundaries and how being in a um, culture, an ecosystem that was all about giving and service, how it is very easy to forget that you have the right to have boundaries, that you have the right to choose uh, things that are right for you. So um, I'd love to know what your takeaway is from this. Um, if you'd like to write to me, you can email me on info at rohini or you can reach me via social media. And last but not least, um, I'd like to acknowledge Mike Pearl for his music uh, which is at the start and end of this episode and all the other episodes. If you would like Mike to create some music for you, you can reach him direct uh, via email on MP, that's M for Mike, P for Pearl. So MP969696 at hotmail.com. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to having you with me again very soon.